Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying their cravings for flesh, of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us, us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For us, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, in which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. I mentioned earlier, we have a special speaker today. Uh, his name is Andrew uh, Rokeby, but before I invite him up, I'm just going to give a, a quick bio uh, so that we can know more uh, about him. Uh, Andrew and Tanya both grew up in Christian families and received Christ as children. While studying biology at the University of Victoria, Andrew traveled to Japan for short-term service with Fellowship International following the devastating earthquake and subsequent uh, tsunami which struck Japan in March 2011. After graduation in 2012, Andrew enrolled at Northwest Baptist Seminary, where he met Tanya, who was studying towards an MA in Humanities at TWU. Um, seeking the Lord's guidance, Andrew and Tanya served with church planters in Japan for five months starting in fall 2015. Despite the challenges faced by missionaries in Japan, where only 0.58% named Christ as Lord and Savior, Andrew and Tanya are eager to be part of God's work amongst the Japanese people. God willing, through their ministry, they hope to see an empowered lay, lay leadership in the local church, believers who believe and practice God's word, and believers who engage in cycles of disciple making and congregation formation. So without further, further to do, uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Andrew Rokeby. Thank you. Good morning. No, almost good afternoon. So uh, this morning I bring you greetings from our, our sending church, New West Community Baptist Church in New Westminster. It's a real blessing to be able to travel around our province and meet in churches with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it's a real blessing that we have that here in Canada, so many uh, believers meeting every Sunday. So uh, if you didn't catch, catch it, uh, my name is Andrew Rokeby, and my wife, uh, Tanya, you can see her up on the screen, and our little two children, John and Anna. Uh, this morning they're back home at our, our place in Burnaby. We had a little bit of a, a difficult morning with Anna's teething, so they're at home. Uh, but they wish they could have been here, and they send their greetings. 
So, like it was said, Tanya and I both grew up in Christian homes, and we were saved at a young age through the witness of our parents. I was born and raised in Timmins, Ontario, which is about eight hours' drive north of Toronto, and Tanya was raised uh, on Dunk in Duncan on Vancouver Island. And last spring, we were appointed as long-term missionaries to Japan with our Mission Fellowship International. Since then, as COVID restrictions have allowed, we've been visiting churches and individuals to raise prayer and financial support uh, for our future ministry in Japan. And we really want to thank you today for partnering with us in our ministry in Japan. So after high school, after I finished high school, I moved out to the West Coast to study biology at the University of Victoria. And at that time of my life, my goals were pretty simple. I wanted to become a doctor, and I wanted to have a comfortable life. But, of course, God had other plans. The first time I really gave any thought to uh, ministry in uh, missions was uh, during the first Sunday I was at church in Victoria. The, The main question of the pastor's sermon was, if prestige and wealth weren't important, what would you be doing with your life? And I can remember thinking immediately, oh, I would be a missionary. But then I thought, but being a missionary doesn't sound very comfortable. And I want to have a comfortable life, so I'm not going to be a missionary. But like I said, God had other plans. So I first went to Japan in 2011 after the Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami. And while I was there, I stayed with a missionary family. And it was a really great opportunity for me to learn more about what it was like to be a missionary. I learned that their life wasn't always comfortable. Sometimes it was challenging, and oftentimes it was difficult. But they had a strong sense of fulfillment and purpose uh, in what they were doing there in Japan, being part of God's ministry to the Japanese people. So after about three and a half weeks, I came back to Canada and started thinking more about long-term missions. So uh, I finished up my last year at UVic, and then I enrolled at Northwest Baptist Seminary, which is at Trinity Western University. And first week of classes, I met Tanya, and uh, just 11 months to the day later, we were married. And the week before I met Tanya, I met Doug. And I remember after I met Tanya, going to the graduate student lounge and sitting down beside Doug, who I'd only known for a week, and I said, Doug, I think I've met my future wife. And he looked at me and said, what are you talking about? (laughs) So after I finished up my studies, uh, seeking the Lord's leading, in 2015, Tanya and I traveled to Japan to serve uh, with uh, a church plant there for about five months. And after a process of discernment with our church elders, they consecrated us for missionary service, uh, we, and we were appointed with Fellowship International uh, for long-term service in Japan uh, last spring. And here's just a picture of the church we served with last time we were in Japan. It's actually pretty big for a Japanese church. The average church in Japan is only about 25 people. So with that little introduction... Uh, let's look at today's passage. Let's dig in a bit. So, if you were to ask people 
just your friends or your family, uh, what's the biggest problem in your life? What kind of answers do you think you might get? You might hear a wide variety of answers. Some people might say, the biggest problem in my life is COVID-19 or money, the government, the marital strife, anxiety, or loneliness. Similarly, if you were to ask those same people, well, what do you think the solution is to the biggest problem in your life? They might say a government program or counseling and therapy. While some might be spending so, many, so much time of their life looking for the solution to life's problems at the bottom of a bottle. And yes, I agree, these are real problems. But man's fundamental problem runs much deeper. This problem is on the inside, it's internal, it's not external, and it exists at the core of every person. Sadly, many folks will spend their whole lives not ever looking for the solution to this problem. They don't even know they have a problem. Let's look at what God's Word has to say about man's biggest problem. When we look at these verses, we see that man's biggest problem is immediate, and it's, it has eternal implications. Verse 1 of this passage says that man's biggest problem is what? It's that he's dead. He's dead in his sins. Paul says that the former self was dead in trespasses and sins. The unsaved man's most pressing problem is that he's spiritually dead. Because of his sinful nature, he misses the mark. He falls short of God's standards. Matthew 12, 35 says, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his tre evil treasure what is evil. Man's greatest problem is not on the outside. It's not external. It's on the inside. It's internal. The ugliness that we see in our world on the outside it's a consequence of an ugliness that's on the inside. In Japan, when you visit a large shrine, there's a station of water uh, outside of the shrine. It looks kind of like that. And uh, you gather, use the ladle to gather up some water into your hand, and you rinse, it, you rinse your mouth, and you clean your hands. And according to Shintoism, this process purifies you from defilement. If you rinse your mouth and clean your hands, you'll rinse out the defilement and you'll be clean again. In this way of thinking, man is defiled from the outside, in. If you can just keep the outside out, you'll be okay. But God's word says that the filth and rot of sin are working from the inside out. No amount of rinsing or cleaning or hand sanitizer is going to change who we were before we received Christ. We couldn't scrub off a sin with a brush. No amount of counseling or government or drugs could make us alive. In the same way that you can't clean off death, you can't clean off sin. Moving on, we see how our previous sinful nature caused us to live according to the ways of this world. Verse 2 reads, You formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Because of our sin, we lived according to the ways of this world. Now, in the original language, the word for world doesn't carry the meaning of the physical world. It's talking about the system, as in the system of this world. The system, or the air, of this world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, which is who? It's Satan. The cultural march of this world is controlled by Satan. If you ever wonder why culture always seems to be heading in the wrong direction, you just need to look here. It's because the leader of the parade is Satan. Unregenerate man marches to the beat of Satan's drum. Now that, that sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? Now you might think, be thinking right now, hey, Andrew, we've just met, this is heavy. You might be thinking, my neighbor is not that bad of a guy. He works hard, he pays his taxes, he wears a mask, he doesn't break the law. But man's sinful nature manifests itself in many different ways. When Jesus walked the earth, some deemed the Pharisees to be pretty holy guys, right? They kept all the laws. But Jesus knew the rebellious heart within, didn't he? The inner man was marching to the drumbeat of Satan. They were in self-righteous rebellion to God. In the same way, even the nice unbelievers among us seem like they're not too different from us, right? But on the inside, there's a rebellion to God. Contrary to what the spirit of our age says, we're not the masters of our destiny. In our culture, I think it's fair to say that we worship autonomy. Nobody can tell me what to do. Or even innocuous little phrases like, you can be whoever you want to be. The bottom line is, you're in charge. But Paul says otherwise, doesn't he? In verse 3 he writes, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Contrary to what many in our world today believe, the unsaved man is not in charge of himself. He is a slave to his flesh. He indulges the desires of the flesh, and his mind is captive to Satan. Unbelievers pursue the things which seemed good to them, and good to the times. At the end of verse 3, we see that because of man's sinful nature, he is fit for one thing, God's wrath. The consequence of man's sinful nature and his slavery to the system that Satan has created is God's wrath. In Psalm 7 we read, God is a righteous judge, and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons, and he makes his arrows fiery shafts. This sure is a frightening picture here, isn't it? Paul is clear about the state of natural man. I don't think I can find a clearer description of fallen man anywhere else in Scripture. 
When I was considering which passage to preach, I found this section to be a bit difficult to swallow. It was hard. When preparing this sermon, I felt a strong sense of conviction from the Lord. I'm convicted of my sometimes indifference to the sin around me. I'm not sure about you, but I've had thoughts creep into my mind that sound a little something like this. The gospel is offensive. My coworker is a nice guy. I can't tell him that he's a sinner. I don't want to burden him with God's word. If you ever find Satan tempting you to think that, just turn back to these verses here. Man's in a desperate state. He's not just in need of some behavioral reform or a new group of friends. He needs a complete overhaul. Now, when I say Japanese, what traits come to mind? I think polite, hardworking, friendly, conscientious. The average Japanese person is someone you might want to have as your coworker or neighbor. Maybe you even do. <laughs> On the surface, many of them appear to be the kind of person we might like to be. But reality is not as it appears. When I first went to Japan in 2011 to do relief work, I was met by a believer at the train. We started chatting and our conversation ended up at the current state of the people who had been affected by the tsunami and earthquake. So many people had died and so many more had lost everything. But he said something to me that still sticks with me. He said, the earthquake and the tsunami were tragedies. But 3,000 people die in this country every day. And almost none of them are believers. Japan's a country of about 126 million people. But less than half of them, less than half a percent of them, are believers. And after Bangladesh, it's actually the largest unreached people group in the world. And even after many years of gospel proclamation and hard work and sacrifice by missionaries, the church is in decline. The number of pastors and believers is steadily decreasing. Sadly, there's been about a 35% decrease in the number of missionaries serving in Japan over just the past 20 years alone. Japan is in need of workers to proclaim new life in Christ. Speaking of new life, getting back to our passage, let's look at verse 4. Paul switches focus here. He's just finished outlining man's dreadful condition. And now he starts a new section with a short conjunction. The word, but. It's a pretty simple word, isn't it? But it's so important for us. In verse 4 we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. That's good news, isn't it? That's great news. God is merciful, and he loves us. Ezekiel 18.32 reads, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Some of you might be familiar with these verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his 
only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God does not want, He doesn't desire for us to be objects of His wrath. His mercy is overflowing for those who would repent and believe. For those who call on Him, there is no condemnation. When we seek Christ, we change from vessels of His wrath to vessels of His grace and mercy. Now, if you're dead, what's your greatest need? If you turn on your TV or browse YouTube and watch some popular preachers, you'll find some interesting answers, won't you? Some might say you need the sacraments and penance. Some might say you need prosperity. And others say you just need your best life now. But Paul tells us that more than anything else, we need what? We need life. More than anything else, someone who's dead needs life. And that's just what Christ has done for his children, isn't it? Verses 5 through 7 say, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. As we saw, the former man of verses 1 through 3 was without hope. But when we were in opposition to God and controlled by the spirit of this age, he rescued us. Not only did he save us from our sins, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. Now, we know this isn't a physical seating, right? Because there's a bunch of you sitting here in this room, and there's probably a bunch of you sitting at home on your couch watching your computer screen. You and I are still here. But through Christ, we share in his spiritual blessing. Our mind has been changed from one that marches to the beat of Satan's drum to one that is seated in the heavenlies. Our mind's been renewed in Christ. We've received more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verses 18 through 19, we read, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, so that you would know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? We've received a great blessing in Christ. Now let's look at our last three verses. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Japanese culture, there is this concept called giri. You can kind of think of it like social debt or obligation. And one of the outworkings of this has to do with gift giving. If I give you a gift, you need to give me some kind of gift in return. Otherwise, you'll become indebted to me. If you travel to Japan, you'll find that there's whole sections of department stores that are dedicated to the sale of these nice little treats for satisfying your social debt. Anytime someone does you a favor, you, now, you then have a debt that you must repay. This system might not be quite as explicit as I've stated, uh, but it's omnipresent and everybody participates without even really thinking. It can lead to some interesting considerations. For example, if you're going to give someone a gift, you must consider his or her ability to give you a gift in return of similar value. To give someone a gift that's too expensive would be uh, an embarrassing insult to that person. You would create a debt that would be very difficult for them to repay. From this kind of system, we can draw two conclusions. First, nothing in life is free. Everything has strings attached. Second, through diligence and hard work, I can ensure that I am never in debt to anybody. What's missing from such a system is grace and mercy. This kind of system makes it very hard to receive a priceless gift like the gospel. In Christ, we have a priceless gift. And when we try to earn that gift through good works, we're saying this, thank you for this priceless gift. Here's something Here's some works in return of finite value. We're even now. But God's economy doesn't work that way, does it? First, dead people don't have much to offer. Second, the gift of salvation is priceless. It cannot be earned. Paul says that the gift of saving faith is not of yourselves. So to receive the gospel... We are forced to say, thank you for this priceless gift. I could not possibly offer anything in return. To say that takes a lot of humility. God's system doesn't allow for man to say that he has earned salvation in any way. Salvation is a free gift that is a demonstration of God's love for us. John 4.10 says, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In salvation, God demonstrates his overflowing mercy and grace. Furthermore, God demonstrates his glory in salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 reads, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen 
the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. In the same way that God used Moses, a humble and imperfect vessel, to liberate Israel so that God would receive all the glory, so too has God chosen a means of salvation that allows for no boasting on our part. Verse 10 has the last purpose of salvation in this passage. God has saved us in order that we might do good works to glorify him. Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When I was a little boy, when I had just been saved, my understanding of salvation was incomplete. I knew that Christ had died for my sins and that I would spend eternity in heaven with him. But I didn't really understand to what I had been saved. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This verse tells us that God has redeemed us not only to free us from eternity and hell, but that he might be glorified through the good works that he has ordained for us. God has purchased us and empowered us with his Holy Spirit to do what is good in his sight. Now, what's the practical outworking of good works, you might be thinking? I want to take a quick look at three types of good works that God has prepared for the believer. First, good works are a life of righteousness. In Romans 6, Paul writes, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we can see here one of the first of the three things, three types of good works, is a life of holiness. The pursuit of holiness is one of the marks of all believers, and God promises that he has ordained that we would live lives of holiness. It doesn't stop there. Second, God has prepared for us the good works of encouraging and supporting one another. Our faith is not just lived out on the individual level, but as a community. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Christ says in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Notice that these good works are to be done in community. They are the outworking of our inward holiness. Christian good works are not complete 
when done in isolation. God has redeemed us to live out good works in community with his children. So we've seen the good works to which we've been redeemed exist on the inside and are worked out in community. But I want to submit to you that there is a third type of good work that the Lord has prepared for each and every one of us. Acts 4 tells us of another good work that has been appointed for Christians. It says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Those whom Saul had been persecuting in Jerusalem fled out in every direction. And as they went, they shared the gospel. From this verse, we can see that the gospel proclamation is something that's done by every believer. While there are some who have been particularly appointed to dedicate themselves completely to the proclamation of salvation in Christ alone, the task doesn't only belong to these people. It's an error for believers to think that the ministry of the church is the responsibility of only the pastor. I hope, I hope Pastor Doug hears that if he listens to this later. It's an error to think that outreach is a good work that's been reserved for just pastors. Sadly, uh, this is currently the predominant ministry model in a church in Japan. While believers are devout in doing good works of personal holiness and a community, for historical reasons and for cultural reasons, it's not common for Japanese believers to reach out into the community. Most of the ministry of the local church is done by the pastor. The lay people don't feel equipped and encouraged to carry out the mission of the church and the community. Advance. Oh, there we go. Ken and I uh, have a vision to help all the members of the local church embrace the mission of the church. We're praying that the Lord would use us to equip and encourage the believers in our partner organization in Japan to give them the tools to reach out into their communities and share the gospel. We are praying that God would use us to equip believers to use their spirit-given gifts to support one another, to do those good works, but not just that, but to evangelize their family and friends and co-workers and neighbors with the goal of planting new lay leader-led churches. And this kind of ministry is really needed due to the demographics of the Japanese church. In the fellowship of churches with which we partner in Japan, about 20% of the churches don't have a pastor. And then another 30% of the churches have a pastor, but the pastor is at retirement age and is just waiting for someone to come replace him. We're praying that some of these churches will be receptive to our ministry of discipleship and equipping the saints for evangelism and the planting of new lay leader-led churches. Wouldn't it be incredible, incredible to see God using his children in a Japanese church to bring about a revival in Japan in the same way that we see Christians bringing about a revival in the book of Acts. Japanese believers have many work and family contacts that they could be leveraging to share the gospel, and we want to equip them in that endeavor. Furthermore, we want to be joining local clubs and organizations ourselves so that we can build relationships with contacts into which we could share the gospel. Here's a few ways that you could be praying for us right now. First, 
Pray that the Lord will be preparing the hearts and minds of the future leaders of the Japanese church. Our vision for ministry in Japan involves a bit of a change. So please pray that God will be preparing the people who would partner with us. Second, please pray for us that we would have energy and strength as uh, we uh, continue to reach out to churches and visit churches to raise up prayer and finances for our ministry in Japan. Uh, since the end of June, we've been visiting a new church almost every single Sunday. And uh, we'll be continuing to do that. In, I'm booked up until the end of October now. So just pray for us as we travel that uh, the Lord would sustain us and support Tanya and the kids. And then lastly, I uh, pray that the Lord be giving us opportunities to share the gospel here in Canada. Before COVID happened, uh, when everything was different, uh, we had many more opportunities for sharing the gospel. So just pray that those would come back as the restrictions are relaxed. So in closing, I want to reinforce that we are a blessed people. We have received a priceless gift by no work of our own. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We were lost, rejecting God and living according to the spirit of our age. But God, in a display of his love and grace, saved us from our sins through the death of his son on the cross. But God's redemptive work continues, doesn't it? He continues to draw a people to himself. And for what purpose? Why is he doing this? It's to display his grace for all peoples that they might glorify him and the good works that he has appointed for each and every one of them. So I ask you to consider partnering with us as we raise his banner in Japan. If you want to pray for us, there, I, we send out a regular prayer letter. I, I'm pretty sure it gets to the church, but if you want to get it to your personal email address, uh, I've put out a sign-up list on the table in the foyer. And there's also little prayer cards there. It has our picture on it. You can stick it up on the fridge, and when you wake up in the night to go get a snack, you can uh, remember us and pray for us. And if it's in the middle of the night, it's probably the daytime in Japan. So, so I just want to thank you for having me here today. Thank you for supporting us. And yeah, just pray, prayfully consider praying for us uh, as we join and equip believers for good works and share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ in a nation where only half a percent of people name Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you.